The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 3, 14 through 21. The word of God speaks to us. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Thanks, sis. Hey, guys. Good morning. How are we doing? Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Josh Curry, and I serve as the lead pastor of our downtown congregation, and it's, uh, it's a real joy to be with you guys. Thanks for letting me be here. Uh, you guys, the, the 10 o'clock, you guys are my people. The 8.30 crowd made me a little nervous, <laughs> a little nervous. I, I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying 8.30, the day after OU got beat by uh, Kansas, rainy and cold. It, it was a little, I was, I don't know that I completely trusted that crowd. Uh, so, so it's good to be with you guys, and uh, I'm excited to continue on in Genesis. Um, let me say a couple of things about just how sober this text is. There, there was a thing that we used to do with a group of churches early on in Frontline where we would get together with uh, about four or five different churches to do a Good Friday service. And uh, I love those guys. The pastors of those churches are still my friends. That partnership is still in existence. But consistently on Good Friday, I would get in this debate with these other pastors, and it kind of went like this. Like, I would push back on them, and basically my argument was, quit trying to Easter up Good Friday. Quit trying to Easter up Good Friday. And here's what I mean by that. On Easter Sunday, I want to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. I want it to be the biggest party of the year. I want every Lord's Day to focus not just on the cross, but on the resurrection. On Easter Sunday, it is fully appropriate for grown men to wear pastels. I love the resurrection. The resurrection is our hope. The resurrection is the center of the Christian faith. But there's this thing that happens in evangelical circles where we lack the capacity to stand in the midst of Good Friday with eyes wide open and just feel the weight of it, to just feel the horror of it, to feel the depth of our sin and the, deep, the deepness of our need and how broken the world is and the cost that God paid to reconcile us to himself. Sometimes we want to skip over that to get to the good news in ways that prevent us from fully feeling the glory of the good news. So today we're continuing on in Genesis 3, and that entire illustration is relevant because every bit of me wants to skip to the good news of the gospel in Genesis 3 and not actually feel just how horrible this chapter is, just how weighty it is, just how it's marked all of us personally, 
the ways in which we're broken and sinful, the ways in which other people's brokenness and sin has shaped and affected us, and even the ways in which the world we inhabit is broken and messed up. And so I don't want to rush to the good news because when we get to the good news, I want you to feel the cost of it and the beauty of it. I want it to reshape the entirety of your life. I, I want us to actually have the courage to ask the questions that Jesus is the answer for. One theologian once said that there's nothing more boring than the answer to a question you haven't asked. And Genesis chapter 3 invites us into a world that's print completely torn and marred, even though it still contains the gifts of God. I want you to think with me for just a second about the first time growing up where you were struck by the simultaneous sweetness of the world and the bitterness of the world. The first time you realize that the world's not just a happy place. I remember being seven or eight years old and my family moved to India for almost a year and we had a house that was sort of outside of a village and next to our house there was a slum where people lived in abject poverty. And even as a seven or eight year old kid, I just remember being struck in ways that I think we can only encounter when we get out of our own context. I was struck by just how much goodness and beauty was in the midst of the squalor of the slum. Like I had friends, I met ladies who literally would give their last bite of food to their babies. That's amazing. I had friends that would go to work every single day to provide for their family. They would do disgusting, horrible jobs, breaking their backs to bring home pennies a day to try to keep their family alive. That's glorious. And in the midst of all of those glimmers of goodness and gifts, people that were able to laugh freely in poverty and share freely in poverty, I also saw things that I will never be able to get out of my mind in how horrible they were people abusing each other. In addition to moms doing anything they could to keep their babies alive, moms selling their babies. And I say that because our text in Genesis 3 moves beyond what we talked about last week, which is the first and primary effect of sin, the fracturing of our communion with God. Today, our text is going to invite us to feel the weight of the horizontal dynamics of sin that our relationship with God's not only broken, but our relationship with each other, our relationship with creation has been profoundly marked by the fall. So I wanna pray for you guys. If you got a Bible, you can go to Genesis 3. We'll get there in just a second. Um, Father, would you, <clears throat> would you do a deep work in our souls today? Where you create more capacity for worship, for gladness, for joy as we actually survey the ruins and the rubble of what's around us. God, the places where our lives are marked by thorns and thistles, the places where our marriages are marked with conflict, the places where unmet longings are stuck in our chest, the places where uh, we've prayed a thousand times for you to move in a spot of our lives we haven't yet seen you move. The places where the shadows are clinging to us. Would you help us to not become a people that are obsessed with being morbid or depressed or introspective in ways that aren't helpful, but will you help us navigate a world that's been twisted and marred with the hope of the gospel so deeply planted inside of us that we can be people that laugh louder than the rest of the world while simultaneously weeping with those who weep. So will you deepen the soul of this church? 
So help us and meet us. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, so I want to start by walking through places where God's going to name the mixing of his sweet gifts with the bitterness of sin. And he's going to mention four things in Genesis chapter 3, which should sort of shock us that he doesn't remove the gift, but the gifts all get tainted. The first thing we see is that the gift of children is going to be mixed with pain. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you will bring forth children. Children are still a a profoundly good gift from the Lord, but bringing children into the world on a physical level is going to be agony. But even beyond the physical level, this is God naming that with the birth of a child, the capacity to hurt is going to come with it. Elizabeth Stone once wrote that to have a child is to have your heart go walking outside of your body. With the gift of children in a broken and sinful world will come also anxiety and sleepless nights and grief and fear and pain and longing and prayers and disappointment. Then God's going to mention that in addition to that gift being mixed, the gift of marriage is going to be mixed with conflict. This is not a description of God's good design for marriage. This is a description of how that good design gets twisted. God says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. Uh, A few weeks ago, we unpacked Genesis chapter 2, this beautiful, lofty, true and good vision that God had for marriage, where Adam and Eve were created as equal, but not interchangeable. And in the midst of their communion, they were created for a naked and unashamed relationship that would be reflective of the very nature of God and the communion that we were created for. But now God mentions that because of sin, the most intimate human relationship is going to be marked with conflict in which even her daughters are often going to have desire that's contrary to their husbands and where husbands are going to feel the pull of dominating their wives. Eve is going to desire to rule over her husband. Genesis chapter 4 describes desire that sin had to master Cain, that it was waiting at the door to subdue him. And God is saying that there's going to be this weird way in which instead of complementary, unified husbands and wives reflecting God in their differences and in what they share in common, often the most profoundly intimate and vulnerable relationship that human beings are going to have is going to get pulled into exploitation. It's going to get pulled into competition and strife and conflict. The gift is still there, but the gift gets mixed with bitterness. Thirdly, God's going to mention that the gift of work is mixed with toil. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the creation mandate, that God gave Adam and Eve amazing capacity to creatively fill the earth with the glory of God, to create art and industry and culture that would be reflective of the beauty of God. The good gift of work still exists, but now God says this to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it'll bring forth from you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Human beings are still going to work, and work still has dignity and goodness. Work is a way that God's going to 
bless people and feed people and clothe people, but now all work, no matter what your job is, is also going to get mixed with this treadmill of futility where your best is not going to be enough. And even though you plant seeds in the ground, those seeds are often going to get choked out by weeds and by the sweat of our brow, we're going to labor. And sometimes it's not going to be enough. Our work is going to be frustrated and frustrating. And then God mentions perhaps the most painful mixture of all, the gift of life getting mixed with death. Verse 19, he says, By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread, till you return from the ground, for you were taken out of it, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. This is God saying that in the midst of all the good gifts that he's given us, The common denominator for all human beings is that with sin, death enters into creation and death will be the great equalizer. No matter what you build, no matter who you love, no matter how educated you are, no matter how good your 401k, no matter how disciplined you are to save for the future, this is the Bible being clear-faced and honest about death coming for all of us and the sorrow and pain of that. And in the midst of all of this stuff that's weighty and heavy and hard, there's even something darker behind the curtain. There's something more tragic behind the curtain. And it's perhaps the dark thing that we as Americans are the least likely to reckon with. Look what happens in verse 14. Then God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, people have done weird interpretive things with this text. This is not the Bible trying to unpack for us in Genesis herpetology. This is not God being concerned with how did snakes lose their legs, why are they creepy, and why do only weirdos like them? All of those things may be true. But in the ancient Near East, the culture in which the Israelites would have received God's divine revelation of Genesis, when they heard about the serpent, they would have had pictures in their minds of chaos beasts, of powerful forces that exist to devour, to destroy, and to wound. And what happened in the fall that we have to reckon with if we're going to understand just how costly and just how good the news of Jesus is, is that Adam and Eve didn't just fall into bondage to sin on an individual level, but Adam and Eve as vice regents of the earth, as a king and a queen that were to live under the authority of God, their creator and father, and fill the earth with the beauty of God, what happens when they believe the lie of the evil one is they actually submitted themselves to tyranny and bondage, not just on a personal level, but as the human race. What I want you to understand is that Satan the deceiver, he whispered in their ear this really enticing lie that true joy, True life, true fulfillment, and true freedom would not be found under the authority of God. It would be found in the illusion of autonomy as they attempted to step out from under the authority of God and tried in ways that were inappropriate to be like God. 
And what happened that's so profoundly ironic is when they believed the lie and they turned from God and believed the serpent, instead of enjoying the benevolent authority of God in true freedom, the freedom of design, the freedom of telos, that they were created to love God and be with God and be under God because God was for them and not against them, what happens is they move from true freedom to bondage And the reckoning of the human race will now be not just a reckoning with the fruit of individual sin and moral culpability and the judgment we deserve, but Adam and Eve, in essence, handed the keys of creation over to the forces of darkness. And if you're going to understand the coming of Jesus, the seed of the woman, we have to understand that this is a deeply important part of a biblical worldview. If we're going to make sense of what's happening in our lives, in our culture, in our city, and in the world, we need to understand this. Acts chapter 26 describes people walking in darkness under the power of Satan. Galatians chapter 1 talks about the power of this evil age. Ephesians 2 mentions the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Colossians talks about spiritual rulers and authorities of this age. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself describes Satan as the ruler of this world. Hebrews 2 speaks of the devil as having the power of death and people being subject to lifelong slavery. And 1 John tells us that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, and whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning since the beginning. And in the revelation that God gave to John, in which John gets this vision of a worship service in heaven, it portrays Satan not as a benign force in the world, but as a great red dragon who wants to deceive the nations and devour the Christ child. The point is that Adam and Eve did fall into corruption. They became sinners by nature and choice. But here's what we also have to understand. In their corruption, the kingdom of darkness gained sway over their offspring. Friends, this is the Bible telling us that evil is real, it's cosmic, it's personal, and it's powerful. Just three weeks ago, we saw, again, terrorists that were willing to murder babies and rape women while claiming to do it in the name of God. And of course, that's a reminder of human corruption and culpability and sinfulness, how we volitionally sin. But that's also a reminder that we live in a world where there are forces at work that every culture in the history of humanity has acknowledged except for us, evil forces, dark forces of chaos and destruction that actually love to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And to deny that reality doesn't make us wise, it makes us blind. The enemy loves pulling enlightenment wool over people's eyes where we ignore the fact that all around us, all around us, the world is enemy-occupied territory. In C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Screwtape Letters, it's this accounting of an older demon giving advice to a younger demon. He's coaching a protege. And in one of the paragraphs, the older demon 
Wormwood says this to Screwtape. He says, I do not think that they will have much, I do not think that you will have much difficulty in keeping your patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in modern imagination will help you. And if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he can't possibly believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Genesis chapter 3 is an accounting of how we sinned against God and our nature was corrupted, but it's also an accounting of how this world has become enemy-occupied territory. And in the midst of all of that brokenness, all of that ugliness, God plants a seed, the first preaching of the gospel, that's going to grow into the tree of redemption. Look at verse 15 again. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God saying that in the fullness of time, the offspring of woman is going to be the serpent crusher. He's actually going to come to confront this being, the deceiver, the father of lies, the prince of darkness. And 1 John 3.8 tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There are many things about the evangelical superstructure of the West that kind of drive me crazy. Nothing makes me more annoyed, though, than when we reduce Christmas to cuteness. As if the power of Christmas is sentimentality, like the power of Christmas is, isn't Mary cute and isn't the baby Jesus cute and isn't it cute for us to have nativities on our mantle? No, no, no. Christmas, friends, was actually God sneaking in in the dead of night under the cover of darkness to establish a beachhead in Bethlehem for the freedom of the human race. Christmas was actually about D-Day. And in the midst of Jesus coming, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. It's not dualism that the Bible wants us to understand. It's not that you have God and you have the devil and the forces of darkness and they're equal powers, yin and yang, light and dark, and we're just sort of hoping that God's strong enough to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and we're caught in the middle praying that good wins. What we see throughout the life of Jesus in his earthly ministry is that Jesus shows up and demons wild out. They panic. They freak out. They recognize his authority better than people recognize his authority. Jesus speaks. They obey. He talks. They shut up. But the thing that's wild, the thing that we have to see today is why did Jesus in the fullness of time not just show up with a shock and awe campaign to destroy the devil and his forces? Why a baby? Why a cross? Why weakness? Why vulnerability? Certainly the living God had the power and authority and does today to reveal his majesty in such a way that all of darkness would be brought to nothing in an instant. Why suffering? Why a cross? What I want you to see is that even in Genesis chapter 3, we have a hint at just how God will crush the head of the serpent to the seed of the woman and just how costly it will be. We have a reminder that if God judged Satan without being wounded for his people, then we as sinners would be caught up in that judgment. If God gave the evil one what he deserved, 
and didn't accomplish the work of redemption for you and me, we would have been thrown into receiving the justice and the judgment that's coming for him. So take your Bible, go back to Genesis chapter three. Let me give you this hint that God gives us as to how he's gonna do this work of crushing the head of the serpent. Genesis three, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. Okay, this is amazing. The book of Genesis was written to people that were steeped in the sacrificial system. They knew that again and again, God had done the work of redemption by providing an animal to be slain on behalf of sinners. Going back to the Exodus, God called the children of Israel to slaughter lambs without blemish, to take the blood of the lamb, to paint it on their doorposts so that the judgment that God was pouring out on Egypt would not come near to the families of Israel. And in Genesis chapter 3, what we have is this foreshadowing of the entire sacrificial system that in itself is nothing but foreshadowing. What we have is God in the midst of sin and rebellion and treason and evil thinking that it won the day. God moves towards Adam and Eve. He doesn't leave them in Genesis 3. He actually kills an animal and in the shedding of blood, he covers their nakedness. The thing that's crazy, the thing that's crazy is that God didn't leave us in Genesis 3. God would have been justified and pure without violating any of his holiness to say, all right, you guys want autonomy, which is really serving the prince of darkness. You want creation without me. You want my gifts, but not the giver. So, okay, you can have it, good luck, and to pull his hands off. But in the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, even in the midst of everything going haywire and getting mixed with bitterness and brokenness, as the darkness floods in, God steps into the darkness and an animal is slain. Now, I want you to think about that and let me read to you Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here's what the Bible was saying, and it's amazing. The victory of Jesus over the kingdom of darkness, the glory of the Son of God that subdues evil is glory that's going to first be wounded to pay for the sins of those that lived in slavery to the kingdom of darkness. That the work of redemption in which Jesus transfers his people from the kingdom of darkness to his own kingdom, the kingdom of light, is going to require a wounding to crush the head of the serpent. Without the wounding of the seed of woman, you and me and our destiny were inextricably bound to the destiny of the evil one because we had fully joined him in rebellion against God. But God in his mercy, God in his love, even in the midst of us wanting to kick him out of creation again and again and again, God comes to us in humility, in breakability through his son so that he can take on his own body 
the suffering that we deserved. So that he could bear in his own soul the wrath that we deserved. So that he could be crushed, so that we could be made whole. So that in his wounding, in his wounding, when the kingdom of darkness thought that they had finally struck the definitive blow to mock God and to face all of creation, in that moment, what God was actually working through the pouring out of Jesus's blood was the covering of anybody that would trust him with the righteousness of Jesus. Here's how Martin Luther put it. In commenting on Colossians chapter two, he wrote, Jesus kills my sin. He destroys my death in his body. And in this way, he empties hell. He judges the devil. He crucifies him. He throws him down to hell. In other words, everything that once used to torment and oppress me in Christ, Christ has set aside. He has disarmed it, and he made a public example of it by triumphing over it in himself. Here's what the enemy loves to do. The enemy loves on the front end to be the father of lies, the deceiver that's telling the same lie he told to Adam and Eve. Freedom, joy, fulfillment, potential is all found in realizing that the authority of God is limiting and restrictive and the good life is found outside of communion with God and obedience to his command. The joy in the fruit is gonna be worth whatever the consequences are. And he makes the fruit look so enticing and so good and so beautiful. And he calls into question the trustworthiness and goodness of God. But then he flips the script. As soon as we eat of the fruit, he moves from being the one that wants to sell to us the beauty and joy of sin to being the accuser of the brethren that wants to bring us to shame and despair, reminding us of just how wicked we really are. The accuser of the brethren loves to point out not just general sin, he loves to point out the specificity of our sin. The skeletons in our closet, the things that we haven't been able to beat, the places where we're still broken, the places where we continually do the very thing that we hate, the places where we haven't yet experienced the full victory of Jesus, the accuser of the brethren loves to preach those things to us. He actually loves to use the law of God as a club to beat us, pointing to the judgment that we deserve. And even in this room right now, Let's let it not be lost on us that a large portion of us in this room, in this moment, are feeling the pain and the tension and the pull to actually hide from God because we're aware of the ways in which we deserve the wrath of God. But the work of Jesus in disarming the powers is the work of completely bearing the full penalty for our sin and not just sin in a generic sense, not just capital S sin, but the specificity of my sins and your sins, Jesus has those nailed to the cross, pays the penalty so that he might grant us righteousness that's alien to us, that we didn't earn, we didn't achieve, we didn't deserve. He gives us the gift of his grace. He clothes us, and in the clothing of Jesus's righteousness, we're called to actually make war against the accuser of the brethren. Let me read one more thing to you before we pray. This is John Calvin's Institutes. Here's how he puts it. Since we must acquire victory through Christ, God declares to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 in general terms that the woman's offspring is to prevail over the devil. 
Part of the believer's knowledge of God recognizes that even though unclean spirits may combat believers, ambush them, invade their peace, beset them in combat, and very often weary them, rout them, terrify them, and sometimes wound them, yet they will never vanquish or crush them. Christ has humbled Satan, crushed his head, and assures his elect of their victory in the end. They live relying on that victory. Genesis chapter 3 is the most honest, thoughtful explanation of just how we've gone wrong and the world's gone wrong that you're ever going to find. And in the midst of the beauty of it, the language of it, the weight of it, God doesn't leave us in the midst of that disaster to figure out our own way out of the ashes. God promises that in the fullness of time, the seed of woman is going to confront the kingdom of darkness. And he's going to do it at great cost to himself through a wounding. Through a wounding. The hope of all Christians, our hope in this life and in the next, is not our merit, it's not our goodness, it's not our achievement. The hope of all Christians is that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We belong to Jesus. And when the accuser of the brethren comes, what we get to say back to him is, yeah, and that too did Jesus bear on a cross. That too. And when the tempter comes and tries to tell us just how satisfying and free we'll be if we just avoid the authority of Jesus and live on our own terms and buy into the illusion of autonomy, we get to say back to him, no, 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 no. Jesus, the king, is the king that I can trust because he was willing to be crushed for me. And even when his answer is no, I can have confidence that he's actually working for my good because he didn't even hold back his own life. So today, can we, can we stand? And can we stand in gratitude and in defiance of the powers? Not chest-thumping foolishness because no person in this room can stand before the kingdom of darkness on our own. And if for you the jury's still out about whether or not you're surrounded by forces and powers that want to steal, kill, and destroy, my, my prayer is that you would go back to God's word and wrestle with that. Wrestle with it. The world is not the way it is simply because of human corruption. But there are forces at work on an individual level and there are forces at work on a cultural level that want to spray paint over the image of God in humanity. They want to mar it, they want to mock it. The evil one can't create anything. All he can do is deface. All he can do is try to mix God's gifts with bitterness. And as the people of God, every single week, we need to come to have our hearts reset about where our righteousness is, where our hope is, where our future is, and what the weapons are that we've been given to resist temptation and to do battle with the forces of darkness. Real weapons, real weapons, all rooted and grounded in the finished work of Jesus and what's been offered to us in him. One of those weapons is the Lord's Supper. 
It's a place where every single week we remind ourselves that his body was broken and his blood was shed to make a way for us. We eat this meal in hope. We eat this meal in repentance. We eat this meal in an act of defiance, reminding the accuser of the brethren where he's whispering in our ears and hearts that he's been cast down because Jesus was lifted up. That his accusations don't stand. And in the places where we get pulled again this week to run from Jesus and his authority, we're invited with the help of the Holy Spirit to come back again and again to Jesus is Lord, the most fundamental confession of a Christian. So God, I pray today that as we come to this meal, you would feed us. Thank you that the skin of animals, the sacrifice of lambs, couldn't remove sin, but the death of Jesus Christ could and did. And I pray today that you would help us to receive the fullness of Jesus, the height and the depth of what he's done. Pray that we would be struck afresh by how sweet the gift of your son is to us.